Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the uh, author of the book School X and host of the podcast Transformative Principle. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, advertising. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sell solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to Scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. <laughs> Greetings, Jethro. Lucky. How are you? Yeah, I know. God, I'm a little I'm, drifty today. So <laughs> no kidding. That's I'm blaming, all right. I'm blaming the humidity. So how are yeah. you? It's not like we haven't done this for 52 episodes already. Right. I want to <laughs> really demonstrate that to be the case. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Any... I, I have Go some ahead. exciting news that I want to want to start with. So last week we announced the Center for Cyber Ethics to everybody and reminded people that they could go to centerforcyberethics.org and they could support our mission with a donation. And guess what? We had a Tell response. <laughs> yes. We had a donation from Stacy in Washington of a hundred dollars. So that's, that's pretty exciting. So well, Stacy, thank you for supporting the Center for Cyber Ethics and the Cybertraps podcast. That's wonderful. We'll have to name an episode after her or something like that. There we that. go. Something like that. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So as part of our cyber ethical mission, um, we have the pleasure today of speaking to L.D. Manjin, who is the CEO of Confiant, Inc., and Confiant is the first company to launch a malvertising product that captures harmful ads in real time, providing protection for users from forceful redirects, phishing scams, et cetera, and so forth. And I'm actually really excited that LD will help us understand all of that in more detail. Um, from a personal perspective, LD, this is your, what, sixth uh, entrepreneurial startup? Uh, so, yeah, so basically, Thread, Jethro, thank you very much for, for having me on the podcast today. Definitely happy to, to join you, too, on this. Well, it's a pleasure uh, to yeah, have you here. I basically made a career out of startups in the sense that I had the conclusion a long time ago that you, you can't plan to be someone that has an idea. You, you, but either one has one, or either one becomes a domain expert, subject matter expert enough to see an opportunity, have an idea or not. 
But what you can plan for is to know what to do with an idea, know how to translate it into, into a product vision, know how to translate it into a business, know how to translate it into models, financial models, stories, vision, everything that, that is necessary to actually make uh, an idea reality. Uh, and so that's what I did. So I, my, uh, I did, uh, was studying economics at Boston College, dropped out after two years, worked on Wall Street for a bit, uh, and uh, really enjoyed understanding finance, but decided it wasn't for me. Went back to school and did computer science instead because it was, uh, I, was I got a first, first front row seat to the, the dot-com crash. I was on, uh, on Wall Street during that time uh, and decided that the, the stuff that tech was doing was, to the world was, was way too interesting. And so I decided to go back to understand it better and actually understand the guts of it. And so uh, first job out of college was doing sales for a, a fintech startup in London. Uh, that got bought. Uh, I went, moved back to New York uh, and uh, moved to a, a hardware tech startup uh, uh, first, then a, an ad tech startup after that. Uh, did my own ad tech startup in, in San Francisco. Uh, failed, learned a lot. And was back in New York with a mix of media tech and hardware tech uh, when I went looking for uh, someone who had an idea. I basically, I'd gone, I'd gone in front of my career that after the failure and then understanding what went wrong and wh what I could have done differently uh, and getting my feet wet better at an executive level at, at another firm, I decided to get back into it. And so asked my network of friends and contacts that those specific words, who do you know that's, that's smart, that's doing something interesting? And, and it took a few months, but uh, I was introduced eventually to Jerome, uh, my co-founder, our CTO. Uh, and, uh, and the rest is, uh, well, the rest is for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Well, it's interesting because we both spent some time on Beacon Hill then. And uh, not Beacon Hill, but uh, what is the hill over there? Anyway, it's been a while. I was in Boston College Law School is the point of this. A little bit before the time that you were... Uh, over on the Boston College campus. So the question then becomes, I mean, Confiance been around for how long now? Eight years this September. Okay, so fair, fair chunk of time. And over that period of time, how have you guys come to focus on this malvertising piece? What, what's what's so the motivation the focus there? Was there? The focus was there from the beginning. So when I, when I met Jerome, he uh, was working on this problem already. So his background, he is a self-taught coder since the age of 12, uh, dived deeply into all things security when he was a child and, uh, and a teenager and, and got a lot of experience around that and a lot of interest. I uh, never pursued any formal engineering training, but remained very technical writing code uh, throughout his career. And he was eventually part of the executive team that a French media company, High Media, sent over to New York when they purchased uh, a, a website called Photolog from Betaworks. Uh, so Betaworks, for those that don't know, it's a local incubator, uh, well-known investor group here in, in, the, in the city. Uh, and they had built up this very large website. It was a top 20, like in the world, top 20 website, uh, largest uh, photo sharing website in South America at the time, and a ton of traffic. And uh, Jerome ended up the general manager of, of that business. Uh, unfortunately for that business, it eventually shut down because of uh, Facebook. Uh, they, uh, when they brought photo sharing out, it changed the dynamics of that market quite drastically. But it was at Photolog where Jerome saw firsthand the issues that ad operations people were having uh, with broken and, and infected ads. So the broken ads, great. You can fix those if you have a good technical system. The infected ads is what got his attention. Uh, so given his background in security, he, he understood the broader cybersecurity world very well uh, and was therefore very surprised at what he was seeing in that he was seeing uh, at the time flash was the major technical vector uh, for ads. Uh, and it was also the major technical vector for malware. Uh, 
And he was seeing some very sophisticated malware getting served up via these ads, and yet no one was talking about it. I ads, digital ads as a vector of malicious activity was not, did not have a seat at the table. Uh, there was and, nothing uh, at the, uh, in the global discussion groups, in the global businesses, no one was paying attention to this. And yet he could tell that there was something here uh, because of, the, uh, of just the, the seriousness of the malware that he himself was finding. Uh, LZ, so, if, you, if you could actually, ahead, just for our listeners, could you unpack that a little bit? So how, how would an infected ad work? Because obviously you're going to a website, part of the web screen are going to be ads in different places, but how does that translate into an actual attack on the user? Sure. So th this was, uh, I'll give you the, uh, the then, and then uh, a bit less of the past, and then to get you to today, because the industry is definitely making a lot of efforts around this to improve a lot of the mechanics that are underpin this. So up until six years ago, uh, five, six years ago, the, uh, uh, from the beginning of the internet till, till then, all ads were basically running in Flash. Uh, and the Flash file, uh, everyone knows Adobe Flash, we all love it, uh, not, but that's a joke. Uh, and uh, the, the, the yeah. Flash system is one where the, it's, a, it's a container that is going to load uh, a set of code that is self-hosted inside the ad. That is the, the flash container. And then when it loads, it gets to do a lot of different things because the way the, the, the operating system and the architecture of the computer works, uh, it gives certain priorities to certain file systems and certain, certain pieces of code depending on when and how they load. So 10 years ago, when a flash ad would load, it could do at that point many different things. And if uh, it was hacked in some way, I, if a, a bad actor had written that ad instead of it being the, so it was a, it looked, it has an, an image that says it's a Procter & Gamble Tide ad, but actually it was not Procter & Gamble that created it. It's somebody else, a bad actor who creates it pretending to be Procter & Gamble, makes it look like a Tide ad. The moment that that computer, that that ad loads, the file loads onto someone, in someone's browser on their computer having been called by the ad server, it has now access. So back in the days of Flash, because uh, Flash was unfortunately such a, a technically compromised system, when it would load, the bad actors could immediately do downloads onto the person's device. If the, if the device fit their parameters in terms of this is a device that can be hacked using an exploit, they could immediately get root access to the computer uh, and therefore turn the device into a slave device. So that was, that was the, most, the most sophisticated 10 years ago were the drive-by downloads. And we, we caught some real stuff. We caught Co Kofter and a variety of other, like some serious attacks that, that Jerome would need to be the ones to speak to because I don't know the history of those as well as he does. Uh, but so, so can I ask can another we, question in here? I mean, ahead, I'm please. sorry to interrupt, but this is just super fascinating to me. So, you know, as, as someone who's interested in technology, but certainly not um, a coder or a security expert or anything of the, anything like that. I had heard about Flash being bad. I had heard about slave machines, but didn't understand how big of an issue this was, um, even until you're just describing it now. And so it seems like this is an issue that, as you said, nobody was talking about it. And certainly the average person didn't understand and thought, I mean, I remember when the iPhone came out and everybody poo-pooed it because it didn't have flash and and you couldn't use flash and the apple at that time must have known how bad flash was and how dangerous yes. it could be 
and and how resource heavy it was. But most people didn't really get that that was such a big deal. And and I just find that fascinating that now you know we're we're very much aware of how bad that was at this point. It, it, it's it's you have to realize the, the well the internet. I usually say this about the ad industry, but the, the ad industry has been doing twenty plus compound annual growth for over twenty five years. The that that nest that need of just capturing more and more and more and just growing more and more and more has led to a ton of what I call infrastructure debt. The industry has industry debt, and so in, in a software company, you'll have technical debt in terms of oh, we built it a bit messy because we're only three people and a dog, and therefore, ten years later, you got to rebuild it. That's technical debt. Uh, <laughs> an industry though has industry debt. There's infrastructure debt. The, these are these are the the ad tech industry, which is a big part of the internet from, and so I, I don't know as much the broader internet part, but definitely with the ad tech industry, it is a, it is a, a different type of coding environment because of that infrastructure debt. Uh, you have, uh, it's like these days, I tend to think that there are three different types of technologies that exist in the world, well, software technologies specifically. Uh, there is the, the traditional software where it's written by an engineer, the code that it's done gets hosted on a server somewhere and the software is reliable enough that it is the uptime of the server that controls its SLA. So reliability key, it does it 99.999. When the hardware breaks, okay, great. Software breaks too, but the software itself doesn't break. You then have ad tech. Ad tech, so the, which underpins the, the, the ad marketplace or the ad marketplace is, uh, is a technology in which for display ads, 3% error rates are completely acceptable. For video ads, 15% error rates are the starting point. I 15% of the time there is an auction for an ad at Procter and Gamble. And I'm just, you can use them over and over again. Procter and Gamble buys the impression says, yes, I want it. And they say go. And then 15% of the time, nothing happens. It breaks. The software breaks, not the hardware, the software breaks. So the SLA for video ads starts at 85% accuracy. Most of the SLAs, you're trying to add nines at the end, 99.999. It's like the best companies in the world can get you maybe four nines, five nines, and that's incredibly reliable. Video ads, 85% starting point, and it gets worse. So that creates a very unique coding environment. That creates a very unique software environment, which is in how the softwares talk to each other and what is an acceptable risk or not. When you know that no matter what you do, the best you can get to is 85%, do you actually try and do everything right? Because you know you're not going to get there anyways. You can't get to the 99%. So it, it, it has a, an impact on how the industry plays with that. So if I understand you, LD, what you're talking about is that these service level agreements of you know, 80, 85% or whatever help to introduce the vulnerabilities that allow for malvertising. Is that the connection? Correct. that we're... So the third, okay. the third type of tech, the third type of tech is security tech. And the reason security tech, so ad tech was different because of the, the error rates that are acceptable. Security tech is different uh, because of the fact that you have to have a human still in the chair. You, you do, for, a, for a security system to work effectively uh, up until now, and there, I know there are some security startups that are doing AI-enabled things, but in, in, from where I sit and from what I've been taught uh, and, and from people that I trust in this, it's like there is the ability to beat the human mind when it comes to ingenuity and, and pattern matching, it is still untoward. There is no there is no AI that will beat the human mind. Now you can create an AI that gets you that is great at Go and that's great at chess, 
but like building one that does both and plays bridge and knows how to go sail and et cetera, et cetera. The human mind is always going to be better because of the breadth of experience we have for now. That may change in the future. I'm not going to get into AI. But so the reason that matters is that when you're building the technology system, you have to build the control center for a person to be directly involved into it when you build security tech, because that's what the bad actors do. They're constantly looking to figure out where is the flaw in our design, both the design of the in industry's infrastructure, as well as the design and security system protecting that infrastructure. They hunt those edge cases. And when you have an industry who has that error rate that is acceptable, that is an edge case. You can it's hide a, anything. You can hide anything. Mass, there's a hole in the wall. It's a big <laughs> hole. There's no. There is no wall. With fifteen percent, there are a lot of edges. If I understand, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, LD, so, this is so absolutely fascinating. The industry, the industry does pay attention to that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, this we could geek out on this for a long time because this is really, really cool stuff, and I'm fascinated by the interplay of these different systems because they're wrapped up in human motivation, right? Our motivation to keep things safe, other people's motivation to take advantage of it. I think one of the reasons we want to talk to you and, and learn more about Confiant though, is that, you know, for the average listener of this podcast, they simply want themselves and their kids to be safe, right? Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, you know, I understand you're not necessarily working at a consumer to consumer level, but how, how does this play out in the real world for individuals? You know, what, what are the things that they can keep in mind to kind of cut down on the risks of this advertising taking advantage of them? Yeah, no, sure. So I, the, the first good news is that the, it's, the industry does pay attention and it sometimes takes time to get a whole industry to turn and then to orient itself and to really validate and value all, all pieces of it, but so flash is gone. <laughs> that is the first first good step. Flash is gone uh, from the ad industry, at least. Uh, but for an individual user, I'd say the 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 thing that will help in general. So there's a personal, and then is there in general? In general, is pay attention to these things. It's like it's pay attention to the ads that show up, and if you if you see something that you, you don't like, then tell the site. They will not change if they are not made aware of what needs to change. And so I think we, we all each as individuals have a responsibility to identify it's like when we see something that we that we think is wrong or don't like it and, and try and have a level of consideration for why the site. Are, yes, it's like I may not like that this site is advertising to me a pair of jeans I just looked at, but I clicked OK on all the pages and I know that that's how the sites make their money. And I know that I want this content, so I, I need to take it in the right context. I can't yell at them just because they're doing something that seems odd. It's like, no, no, I, I agreed on that. Uh, it's like it's the, the stuff is written down. It's not, they're not doing anything that they're not saying in that case. Uh, but so A, talk about it. But then B, also just, yeah, look for, look for whether the site actually does pay attention to this. Do they have a section that allows them to, that, that tells you what their ad standards are? Does it have a section that tells them, are they part of leaning into preventing these types of issues or not? Uh, and if they don't care, if they don't, if the site isn't making an effort, then, then yell a bit louder that they're not, they're not taking care of you because the, the extreme is a user installs an ad blocker and then blocks all ads. But the problem with that is that that breaks the system. It's uh, and then at that point, then the, the content isn't, isn't getting, the, the, the impressions aren't getting made, the, the, the publisher's not getting paid. So it hurts the person who's last in the chain of events. It's the publisher who bears the brunt of that in that situation. And ad blocking is on the rise. And that's another way, again, to make people's voice heard. It's like, hey, if, if, 
if the industry is not going to take care of me and they're not going to pay attention to my need as a user that I need to have a safe environment where I'm not worried about having uh, a, a criminal scam presented to me in which I may risk losing my life savings. Yeah. yeah there are right. actions to take. And unfortunately, we talked about malware in, in the flash days, which were exploit kits, we were super technical and were actually often the risk the individual user had was, okay, you lose control of that device in some way. But the likelihood of then from that, from that step to someone compromising all your accounts and sending a wire and losing all your money, it, wasn't, it, it could occur, but it was, it had, you had to have a lot of other gates that needed to go wrong to get to that. What the bad actors have migrated to over the years, they now do something that we call malicious clickbait. So instead of drive-by downloads, which was the infection infecting the device, they've now moved where they're using their, their skills at hacking. So you can hack people technologically. You can also hack people psychologically. They're both, they're both, and they both end with the same letters. That means that there's similarities to the, they're, they're part of an underlying system. And unfortunately, malicious clickbait is one where uh, you start hearing these stories coming out of the UK, coming out of Australia, Europe, Germany. It's like not that much the US as of yet. And we have a reason. We can talk about why that is. It's interesting. But the, uh, the stories are people are losing their life savings. They're getting conned into uh, fake Ponzi schemes and, and conned into sending hundreds of thousands of dollars, their whole life saving gone because they clicked on an ad. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's well, really frightening to think about for sure. So uh, one of the things you mentioned was installing ad blockers and um, Google is doing away with um, cookies and moving towards Flock, which just sounds like them doing the same thing, but with different technology than cookies. And Apple's made a big push recently to uh, prevent cross-site tracking and things like that. And how do those moves by Google and Apple, for example, influence this this area that you're focused on with advertising yeah no it, it's uh those moves are are, are are serious they're they're necessary uh it's unclear whose system which what, what will be the new standard what has what is clear is that the the governments have made clear that there are that consent is a currency the users the user must consent gdpr tcpa here in the us you've got a a ddi a in japan Every, every country is working on it in one way, shape, or form or another. And so all those countries institutionalize, all those systems are based upon the principle that consent is required. Uh, and, and therefore, how the industry treats that consent, manages it, uh, and, and acts according to it is the, the next question. So the, the system is still being developed. No one is, is clear yet on what is the next system post-cookie. They're still trying to figure it out. We can find uh, look a step further. Uh, beyond that saying, oh, well, wait, let's theorize that there will be a system. The industry is going to come up with something new post-cookie, or, or they'll figure out a way to whatever. They'll, they'll do, there will be something. Our position is, coming at this from the security lens is, well, all right, we want to be there to check, is the consent being acted upon correctly? Because it's one thing to say this is the law and this is the system. It's another thing to say, is the law adhered to? Was the system correct? And so we actually just launched this a month and a half ago. It's a, it's a, a big new expansion for us where up until now, we focused primarily on protecting from malicious uh, security issues and quality issues. Our, our latest foray is an expansion of that control system into controlling for privacy compliance. So we're, we're not competing with the CMPs, which are the consent management platforms. Well, we're, we're positioning where we're complementary. We're at the end of the chain. 
we're, we're the quality control test. We're saying, hey, okay, great. There was, a, there was an impression with the user's consent. That consent got passed upstream. Someone bid on the impression, an ad came back and executed in their browser or in their app or on their device. What did that ad do? And did it adhere to the consent it had been given or did it do something different? Did it actually, was it mismatched in some way? Was there consent tampering? Did it do browser fingerprinting, which breaches all consent because you cannot concede, there is no consent. Browser fingerprinting is a way to track that that is, is the most technical way and the most accurate way and is considered barely legal in most situations because of the strength of it. Uh, and so it is something that, that people stay away from. And, but there's, there, there's your, your, your window of opportunity. You've got browser fingerprinting on one end, you've got cookies on the other, and then there's all the other systems in between. No matter what system gets picked, we as an industry, we as a digital world, we as, as, as need to have systems in place that catch when it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't work because of infrastructure debt. So a supplier upstream uh, may be uh, working on too thin margins and therefore doesn't have the resources to invest to rebuild the system that they built 10 years ago. And therefore they're running in a way that they can't do this. It's not that they don't want to, they just technically cannot do this. Or they therefore they're going to be infringing. Right, right. They, they financially, financially cannot. cannot. Right. They financially cannot. So what do you, how, do you, how do you ease them out of an industry when they're, they're, they're and, and that may be small, that may be big. I have, not, I have no one in mind when I think about that. But that's, that's one of the like, technical debt is of that nature. They're, they're financially constrained. How do they, the industry has to force them to do that at that point and find a way to either their numbers work or not. Hmm. But that's, LD, that's still if, with positive intent. Right. They my apologies. Let me, let me ask you this. I mean, because I think there's, there's almost a philosophical question at the root of what you're trying to do, right? Because what is consent? I mean, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you prize out the different levels of consent and make sure that all of the permutations are being adhered to? So, for instance, if I'm going on to the New York Times website and I'm consenting to ads, how far does that go? How much language do we need in order to determine? And it, it just strikes me that, that this is a very complicated linguistic issue as much as anything mm -hmm. else. Um, okay, and I'm, sure. I'm curious to know whether or not there are any mechanisms being developed to help clarify the concept of consent to make it easier on the consumer and so that they really know what they're doing. And to add to that question, does consent mean that I clicked yes on a cookie allower or whatever the, the thing is because it was taking up half of my screen on my phone and I couldn't read any content. So I just clicked yes to get out of the way. Is that the same thing as me saying, yes, I want to have advertising directed at me. So there's a, there's a great book called uh, never split the difference by Chris Voss. He's the ex FBI negotiator for hostages for 25 years and, uh, and it's uh, what I consider kind of a companion book to the book Influenced by, by Dr. Cialdani. Uh, so both of them have to do with psychology, the psychology of persuasion, how people get persuaded. The reason I bring it up is that in Chris in Voss's book, he talks about how uh, a fake yes is the easiest thing to get to when, when you're negotiating. And so you can get someone to say a fake yes just to make you go away. And it's very easy. It means nothing will, it is not a true yes. It actually is no in yes's clothing. Uh, and that is the, the same situation, Jethro, as you just mentioned. It's like, hey, you just click yes just to make it go away. 
And so again, there, there so I, I took it a, a bit level deeper than then you were presenting it, but but therein is the conflict of figuring out the the definitions of consent, and then how do we actually properly define it, and where does an individual have autonomy and responsibility? If you say yes, you said yes. Now, okay, we know that in certain situations it means no. And if I am, 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 am committed to uh, your positive intent and ensuring that I do something that works for you. So if I'm the salesperson and you give me a fake yes, I'm going to treat it as a no and act accordingly, knowing that I heard a fake yes. But at what point is that fake yes? Hey, the person did say yes. They didn't mean it, though. So, yeah, so it's a very hard question. I don't uh, right now, I'd say the, uh, the bureaucrats are the ones that are currently debating that term. So it's going to be a while before we get anywhere. But I think the uh, it's it's a question that that you could take that question of what is consent and drop it into any situation of the world today, and it is I think very applicable to the the way where the world is right now. So it's a discussion that should be happening well outside of it. It's, it's consent is is a, is a key term in many different ways for for the next generation of our society. Uh, and so, well, it sounds it sounds like we're doing a technological version of Me Too in a, in a way. Like, you know, did the consumer actually consent to the actions that resulted from that interaction? Yeah, and then, and what responsibility do does the industry have? What responsibility does the user have? Uh, what the responsibility do other do the parents of the user and the children of the user and every uh, what do we as as neighbors of the user and all that all that comes into play. Yeah, and and taking that a bit further, also that the um, nobody consents to installing malware on their device, even if they may be tricked into doing that, or that's a flaw in the system. And so it it seems that if we could figure out a way to track it, then those advertising companies and perhaps the websites could be found liable for destroying a person's machine, having ransomware installed on it. And those are all things that um, I don't know that we have the answers to those questions right here, but those are things that I know people are, are talking about and asking who's really responsible when it comes to these things being installed at, on computers. And if it's a social engineering thing, that's that's pretty easily the person who's at fault. But if it's somebody who is just trying to do their job and some malvertising is on the website that they're using and it gets onto their computer, then, you know, can that person really be blamed for that? Yeah, no, no, you hit the nail on the head and it's, it has to do, it's, it's very, you hit, it's very dear to our heart confined in terms of how we look at all of this, because you can't answer that question until you can answer the what. So what is it that you're going to be held responsible for? And for to be able to answer the, the what consistently, you need to have accurate data. You need to know what is it? What are we saying? Is it in general this happens or in specific? And, and, and laws are about things that are in specific. Uh, it, is, it is the application of laws in general and specific that is at the heart of, of everything, the fact that those truths are relative. And so with Confiant, we, uh, we, that matters a lot. So again, we, we talked earlier about the design of a security system and, uh, and, and the edge cases and all the rest. Of it. So you can look uh, in the security world, you have uh, tracking that needs to be done at the uh, attack level, at the attack vector level, and then at the attacker level. Those are kind of the three basic ones, and there's others that we could add in. But basically, it's if you're looking at just the attack type, you'll see, okay, this is a phishing scam. Okay, but it's a phishing scam that came through, uh, well, it can come through either ads or email. 
And then it was done by Zirconium, Megobler, or X. And so you need to have that architecture in mind when you build and design your system because accuracy has to do with the data. Is the data accurate or not? Is the data, in order for something to have the right data, you need to have the right context. And so if you don't prepare your data architecture to be able to track what you need it to track, you lose the history, you lose the context, and you're just dealing with a lot of noise. Uh, signal versus noise ratio is something I'm sure you've heard a lot in, the, in it, uh, but it's, it's in many different spheres, but especially in security, it matters. So when Confine started out, the ad industry did not have an accurate way to track how many attacks were happening and to whom. And so that's, that was the first challenge that, that we as Confine saw is that we needed to build a system that could be accurate in terms of understanding what is happening on individual users, on individual impressions. And so that was one of the two first things that, that we innovated, and it took us several years to get it right. Uh, the second major piece was that we built a system that could act on behalf of our clients when we saw something wrong. So rather than just notify them and say, okay, hey, we found a bad actor, here it is, you go do your thing. We actually built a system that could, when it detected that it had the right data, that it had the right signal of the right bad person and it had to do something, we could block and block that ad from loading, prevent it from showing to the user and, and deal with the after effects of that afterwards. And so the reason I only bring this up is that we've had to do the same thing for privacy. There has been no mechanism to track accurately how an individual ad is acting according to an individual user. Jethro, when that Procter & Gamble ad loads for you, it will not load the same things as it loads for Frederick. It, those are just different, your different locations, you have different technologies, you have different histories, you're different people, the ad will behave differently. And therefore, from a compliance point of view, though, I need to be able to know how it behaved against both of you because either each time it shows itself, that is a potential violation. And so that was the major thing that we had to do. And so we did it, we did it for security, and now we've done it for privacy as well. So at a meta level, LD, don't you start to get into some significant privacy issues yourself in terms of needing to know a fair amount about Jethro and myself in order to gauge Actually whether not. or not? Actually not. <laughs> all we all we need, all we are, we are we are standing with our back to you. So all we need to do is be positioned to okay. look upstream at everything they're sending you. And yes, That's everyone upstream, I know everything about them. Uh, but they are consenting to that because they are serving into the uh, ecosystem. And so we have access to that. But anything that's behind us, we just don't look at. Now, technically, we have, we could decide to look at that data. The data goes through us, but we have specifically built our system to, to mitigate that and to ensure that we do not act as a, a processor or collector of data in any way. See, I think that's actually a really important point to come to at this discussion because it didn't really occur to me until I was listening to you talk that there's just this vast pool of data, you know, that is flowing through your servers uh, at one time or another. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's a key part of what we discussions we have with every group that we sign up with to understand. It's like this is their data. This is this is what we're going to do with it. This is how we're going to treat it, and this is what we're going to actually look at and not. And uh, and it's it sometimes gets uh, the lawyers don't always understand that it can flow through, but we're not actually looking at it. <laughs> well, let's not go into the legal sphere right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, I just want to go back to one thing that you mentioned before about how um, people in other countries, not the U.S., are losing their life savings from these uh, malicious clickbait uh, stories that you that you mentioned. You said it, there's not that's not happening as much in the U.S. Why do you think that kind of thing is not happening as much in the U.S.? 
So uh, this is pure theoretical at this point, conjecture on my part. But so we first started seeing tendrils of these new attacks emerge two years ago now. So summer of 2019 was the first time we heard inklings that, hey, there's, there's, a, new, there's a new attack type coming out of the vector of ads. Uh, and uh, we published our first research on it in uh, January of 2020. We called them Fiscore attacks. Uh, and they were basically the, these Bitcoin investment scams that would start with a clickbaity image of a beaten up celebrity. Uh, Boris Becker was the big one at first uh, in, uh, in Germany. And uh, it, it'd be the, the headline would be Boris Becker has been beaten up and you see an image of him all, all hit. And you're like, oh my God, who would, who would beat up Boris Becker? So you click on it because that's a bit <laughs> odd. Like, why would someone beat up Boris Becker? You click on it. And now you're onto a page that tells you actually Boris Becker was having some financial difficulties, uh, but he was able to uh, save his fortunes and is now 10x richer than he's ever been thanks to this great investment scheme. And it's written as a news article from a local newspaper, uh, a, a national, typically a national brand. That page, both of those, either the ad or the page are, are often technically cloaked. I, they will only show themselves when they're showing to grandma. Anyone else who goes and has that ad load, it will load as Parter and Gamble. And anyone that goes to the landing page, it will load as Tide. But when it when the user matches the parameters of the attacker, I aha, I've got I've got a grandma on the hook. Let me let me show the, let me show Boris Becker. You now have the, this two step of boom boom, and then if they you can then at the bottom of the article click through and ask to join. And the moment you've given your, your information and news, you're going to start being in a scenario where you get called 20 times an hour to try and put a little money in. They're going to they're even try and take your money right away. And they're going to show you an ever-increasing amount of money because your investment is doing so well. I, they have built a UI that says this is an investment. Now, look, you put $1,000 and you now have 10000 You should give us more money because we're going to make you even more. But alas, or unfortunately, you're never going to see it. That's not true. There is no money, there is no scam, and so it's uh, it's very interesting uh, because it's uh, obviously it's a new type of attack. The uh, I, I skipped the middle one, which was uh, we had flash ads ten years ago. We then had forceful redirects, which were JavaScript based attacks that would trigger a redirect on the screen to obviously a phishing scam or other other things. And now we have this clickbait attack. So the attacker methodology changes every time. We as a as a as a protector in the scenario. This goes back to the data and the accuracy. We need to be able to track our attackers over their history. So when they migrate, it's not just, okay, here's a new attack type. No, no, no. Who is it? Who, which is the group that's doing this? Because there is a person on a computer somewhere in the world that is initiating this. We need to figure out who those are. And so this brings me back to the, the answer of the U.S. vis-a-vis uh, Michelin's clickbait. Uh, the U.S. has been more forceful. Uh, in uh, in prosecuting uh, these crimes, they have uh, they have convicted people that don't believe they've ever arrested anyone, as the guilty parties uh, have not set foot into territories on which we have extra extradition rights. Uh, but there have been people that have been convicted, and generally, when you have scams of this nature, so we uh, we estimated that the uh, when we did our first report on Fiscor, we estimated they were making a million dollars a day. I think it was. They are not the scammers. It's important to remember. The, the, the attackers that we caught were not the scammers. We caught the, the referral people that were sending the scammer to the attack. Sorry, that were sending grandma to the attacker. 
So in, in all, in all, and it's often the case, if not always, that the it, there is an ecosystem. There's a chain of people doing X, Y, and Z. And a different person does X, a different person does Y, a different person does Z. So in the chain of malvertising, the people that can technically compromise the industry need not and often are not the people that are running the scams or running whatever it is. Even when it was back in the flash days, it was more like, hey, I've got a method to infect 100,000 computers. What do you want? And then I would go and sell that to someone else saying, oh, yes, I would like to infect those with X. I'm like, okay, well, will you pay me a dollar per? Great, I'll do it. I now infect with your stuff. I'm specialized. I don't need it. It becomes too complicated. So those that level of money, that level of, of risk is something that these attackers are, are, are plenty savvy. They, they know that the U.S. sends planes to go hunt for people uh, that it doesn't like. And so best to not get on their radar. That's that's the best theory we have as of now for why uh, the uh, the scam, these scammers types have not come into the U.S. Uh, but that's only a question of, of time at that point, because at some point, the money available, uh, there'll, be, there'll be people that will try to do it just because they'll think it's worth the risk. You know, LD, if I can, um, the, the scenario that you're describing is relevant for a project that's on Cybertrap's Center for Cyber Ethics to-do list, which is Cybertraps for the Vulnerable. And it really looks at the specific kinds of attacks that go after uh, you know, a, a population that's more susceptible to these things. And I, I think you raise a really good point, which is that we should give a shout out to state prosecutors and to the FBI for working as aggressively against these kinds of attacks as they do. I actually spend a fair amount of time researching British tabloid press for various things, and it's just insane the things that you see there. So I completely understand what you're describing. I also think that when you look at some of the um, advertising that occurs in the United States around political events, you start to see some of that kind of over-the-top going after grandma um, or granddad type language. And I suspect that we may see a connection at some point between the ecosystem you're describing and, and some of that activity, all of which comes into the ambit of the First Amendment, of course, which gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, no, very true. Well, uh, LD, this has been awesome talking to you today. Thank you so much. Um, I, I think we just barely scratched the surface on what you can offer. There are a couple of things that I want to make sure people know about. Um, Confiant does a malvertising and ad quality index um, document every quarter, which is just fascinating and gives you information about what kind of malvertising is out there, what kind of um, uh, things there are that could um, potentially harm us. So want to make sure people check that out. Um, there's a link to that in the show notes at cybertraps.com slash 52 um, and confiant.com, C-O-N-F-I-A-N-T.com is where people can go to, to learn more about what you're doing and uh, appreciate you sharing your information with us today. This has been really a fascinating conversation. So thank you. No, thank you both. It's been uh, lovely to speak to you on all these subjects. Uh, this is excellent, LD. I appreciate it. Jethro, let me just add one more thing to the shout out for folks. I really recommend the Confiant blog, which is at blog.confiant.com. Mm -hmm. LD, I was really impressed with the article by Elias Stein about the tag barnacle phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, one of your more recent blog posts. So I really recommend that people look that up. It's in the show notes. 
there's some great stuff there. And, and as Jethro correctly pointed out, uh, we have many, many more conversations to have with you at some point. So thanks For again. Sure. I look forward to them. Yeah, that thank wraps you both very up. much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it, it's delightful. <laughs> Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this show. If so, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice or go to centerforcyberethics.org and donate to help keep the show going. We sure appreciate everything that everybody does to help promote the show. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to sharing our next episode with Scott Tennant this Thursday. 